So today we're going to do a head-to-head -head comparison of the two top robotic companies that seem to be the most advanced at this time, Boston Dynamics Atlas and Tesla's Teslabot called Optimus. We've got a robotics expert with us who'll do a deep dive comparison, not only on the differences between the form factors, but also the intelligence, the cost to build, the customer base, the business models, and speed of progress. This is one of the few videos where we'll see a complete comparison. Atlas is very impressive with tremendous agility, even being able to do jumps and dances. Tesla's Optimus is using the company's self-driving visual real-world AI to not only navigate, but also to make decisions and with his dexterous hands to manipulate and use tools. Dr. Scott Walter is a robotics expert who has co-founded two robot companies in the past. I've interviewed him a few times now doing deep dives on Teslabot and also looking at 10 other robots in the market. Welcome, Scott. Appreciate it every time you join me. Thank you, Herbert. It's a pleasure to be back. All right, let's get brighter. Okay, Scott, so we've got Teslabot also called Optimus head-to-head -head with Boston Dynamics Atlas. Give me a quick kind of summary of how you see these two uh, compared to each other. Then we'll go into videos and we'll compare them one by one, all these different aspects as well. I think they compare favorably. They all have their niche markets. They all know what they're doing. Uh, Optimus, I think it's clear what the application is for Optimus. I'm not quite sure what it is for Atlas, but I do know what it is for the other Boston Dynamics robot. So when we look at those videos, we'll have an idea what their business case is. Okay, good. Let's get right into showing what Atlas looks like. So first of all, here is Atlas dancing. <laughs> so we have a nice humanoid form there, and we're going to see it can do more than just stand and walk a little bit. It can take care of, obviously, the different dance moves. And what's so important with that is, I've always said this many times that, you know, walking or running is basically a controlled fall. And when you walk, the definition of a walk, at least as far as they're concerned in the Olympic Games, is you have to have one foot on the ground at all times. When you start running, <laughs> it's when you don't have any feet on the ground. And for any sort of bipedal motion um, mechanism, that's not easy to do. So the, the fact that there are times where it's airborne and then coming on down and able to maintain its balance and move around, do stuff like that shows how good they are in the controls and, and, and having really mastered that and showing everyone that, yeah, you can make mechanical devices that have the same kind of dexterity, at least as far as walking um, as a human being, which means everyone says, well, okay, let's start coming up with applications for these legged types of mechanisms, which could be like humanoid bipedal form, or they, they could be quadrupeds or, or others. And as you know, Dennis Hong has said that Walking is hard. I mean, just even doing it with uh, four-legged is already hard enough. And then when you get to the bipedal, it's a little bit more because of the, the balance problem. And as we all know, a stool has to have at least three legs to not fall over. And once you take one of them away, whoop, you need a control system. So <laughs> if you want to be passive, you've got to have three. But if you want to be active, or if you have two, you've got to be active. Yeah. And so and so Optimus is clearly, I'm sorry, I keep saying Optimus. Atlas, which is Boston Dynamics Atlas, has been ahead of the game. They've been around for, I think you told me, 20, 30 years. I think they've and been close to 30 years, yeah. The CEO has been recently interviewed by Lex Friedman. We're going to listen to some of that today. And he's talked about how, how difficult it is to make the bot uh, be able to dexterously walk and with agility. Let's take a look at the latest video that they released that is very, very impressive. I mean, this bot can do everything that we want, we'd expect a bot to be able to do. So the, the thing uh, to remember my is tools again. the first attempt at a walking robot was really by, um, by Honda with the, the Asimov robot. And then Boston Dynamics came later on to be able to do it, and they kind of perfected it. And that's what we're going to see here. And now they've got a little bit more. It's not just walking, but it's trying to actually perform a task. And uh, it's going to be very important to be able to manipulate objects in your world, be able to figure what they are, pick them up. And as you're moving around, make sure you maintain your balance. Because anyone knows if you lift something heavy, 
it can throw your balance off. You can either have to walk a little bit slower or you're going to have to change your center of gravity. That's the same thing with the mechanism. It just can't walk like it was walking before. And now we've got a rather interesting trick here that's going to happen, which, I mean, talk about airborne, airborne and <laughs> sticking the landing. Okay. Such a now, what does that remind you of, of that trick right there? A gymnast. Right. Now, so let's, let's do the first comparison because, you know, everyone refers to that as parkour. And they said, well, Optimus yes. can't do parkour. And it's like, absolutely, it cannot do parkour. And it probably won't. It's not designed to be able to do that. And we can see Atlas is able to do it because the use case seems to have been more in the search and rescue kind of operations where you're not going to be running for a long period of time. So it's got a battery life of maybe about an hour. But the idea is to go into a very dangerous or hazardous situation, be able to get through there and perform whatever activity you need to, to come out. Now, do you remember, I think last week, um, I asked you a couple of questions. So first, how tall do you think right. Atlas is? Right. You did ask me and I forgotten already. <laughs> five, you forgot. It's short, okay. Right? Five. Yeah. It's short. Four. And and do you remember how tall Optimus is? I don't remember. I think I've heard them say five, eight or five, six, something like that. Yes. Yeah. So Optimus is five, eight, but, yeah. and this will not surprise you is Atlas is only a couple inches taller than Simone Biles. Okay. <laughs> you know, She's she's four eight, Atlas is four eleven, so under five feet. And now think about it: a, a lot of gymnasts are not very tall for a reason, and that is it gives you really good body control to be able to do flips and things like that. So that's part of the reason is you get the center of mass down a little bit lower. It's a little bit easier to walk. It's a little bit easier to do flips like that. But it might not be the ideal size for going into a factory environment where things tend to be a little bit taller. And they're designed more for the 50th percentile. So that's the idea of, of Optimus. It's whenever you do ergonomics, you get a spectrum of heights and where everything is. And you're always designing to be somewhere between the 5th percentile and the 95th percentile of the maximum. And for people like me, who is a little bit above the 95th percentile, I have a hard time getting close. My head keeps on hitting things when I get into it. But most things are designed around the 50th percentile. So it tells you almost already, because Atlas is a little bit shorter, it's not really designed for that. At the same time, if you need to crawl into an area where a building has been knocked over for an earthquake, trust me, having a six foot three frame is not advantageous. Having something a little bit smaller, able to get into a big tighter crevices will be an advantage. So that's part of the use case. And when we go into looking at the interview that Robert Plater did with Lex, we understand that they're looking at a very different business cases and they're looking at totally different numbers of bots to be able to put out there. Yeah, we'll get to that shortly. So uh, the, test, uh, the uh, Atlas, it's amazing. It's very, very impressive. Mm -hmm. It can now do all these maneuvers. Was that coded to be able to do that? Can it navigate on yes, its own yes. my, to be able my, to do this? My understanding is that yes, uh, a lot of it was written heuristically. They're starting to add in a layer above it, a software layer that will probably allow them to control it more with uh, simple instructions or showing it what it's doing. But right now, everything is really being done that they are synchronizing everything and scripting it out. So okay. just getting what they call that sick trick there. And there is another video they have showing the back scenes of that. They are showing what they had to go through to, to be able to calculate that. Now, in order to perform it, you still needed some pretty good software, which is a control system. So the control system is like this really most of the magic. And then on top of that, you have the thing that's sort of planning and deciding, well, this is what we now want you to do. So they'll be able to say, we want you to perform something in, in, this, in the air. And it tries to do that. And as it goes along, it begins to realize, oh, I'm deviating from the path. I need a mid-course correction. What should I do? And that's what a control system does. And we've got a very simple control system in our house. It's called a thermostat. You know, it's like you set a certain temperature on there and the thermostat says, whoa, I'm not where I need to be. What do I need to do? It's like either need to turn the AC on or the heat on to get up to where you want to be. And the same thing happens when you're doing that flip in the air is they're saying, this is where you need to be at some point in time. And if you're not there, like we think you should be there, you're going to have to correct that. And how do you correct that? Well, the same way that a gymnast or a diver does is, is like they either throw their arms out or in there, or there's a lot of people who think of like the figure skater, you know, the figure mm -hmm. skater brings their arms in, makes you spin a little bit faster or you put it out to go yeah. slower. That's what they have to work with. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you're doing something like that to try to make sure it meets the timing and everything else that you're seeing so you, so you can stick that. And you've got to be able to react really quickly. So it's a testament to how 
quickly their control system is able to react to the fact that things are maybe not going quite the way that you want to be able to compensate. Because in the real world, you get physics and yeah. there's going to be perturbations and deviations. So you need to be able to correct for that. Okay. So very clearly, you just by looking at that video, this bot is very cool. It can make jumps, but it's optimized for movement and not necessarily yet mm -hmm. for intelligence. And I saw it didn't have hands, right? It kind of had this yeah, squeeze a, thing. Yeah, very simple. Yes. And and there's some other videos out there you see it clearly doesn't have any hands. For it. So for this video, they had to put something on there so you could at least grab the board and put it in there. But it's a very simple gripper and effector to be able to do that. It's not fully fingered. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and start playing some Tesla bot videos. We're going to play some of the early days and the most recent videos of where it is at, at now. I'm going to jump around a few places. You can comment to it, I think, if there's no, no commentary on it. And then we'll pause and then we'll come back and compare these two together. So let's start with the early Tesla bot. This is a video that uh, they released. Do you know, do you remember when it was? It was just, what's, how many months ago was that from now? Yeah, I mean, it seems like years ago, but you realize it wasn't even last year. So uh, it was in uh, September 30th, September 30th okay. of last year, which uh, is 2022. Well, it's quite a long time ago. Okay, so this, this video is the early ones, and then we'll do the most recent one. Yes. Oh, that one is, that, that is February. That's the February. I think it's a mixture. This is going to, this video has a mixture of both the old, this is the early one. Okay, right. So this is but showing what they were revealing. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's the original one that they probably had up and running in August of last year. This they had up and running in February of this year. Mm -hmm. And that's the original specs, the new specs and what we're seeing. So like the hand designs. And then showing them using the FSD computer to do the same sort of navigation of the world. So they're leveraging technology they already have inside of Tesla to be able to create this robot. And then, of course, there's the original Bumble C, which is the proof of concept that mechanically they could build something that could do useful work. In that case, actually pick up uh, a real object that's on the factory floor and manipulate it. And then here, it's just showing, you know, your normal kind of box test when you first build a robot. It seems like the first thing you do is, up. Oh, can it pick up a cardboard box and put it on down? And when it can do that, then you move on to, to tougher things. And of course, that's the, the live demo uh, of the first time it came out in uh, September of last year. And then I'm showing the behind the scenes. And of course, what we're also seeing is later on by February, uh, that the tasks are getting more complicated. We're able to see more dexterity. And more importantly, we're seeing what is, is the second generation version of Optimus here. So the first one we saw with Bumble C was really just throwing a bunch of things together with whatever they could almost find at the hardware store. So they, <laughs> they were using off-the-shelf motors and other things, and then they started developing their own. So in the meantime, they were trying to figure out what are the optimal size motors. They got those, and then that's what the second generation is and what we are pretty much calling Optimus at this point, real Optimus and not, uh, not Bumble C. Okay, so the, that was a mixture of two uh, presentations. The very first time, where mm -hmm. you can see that it couldn't even um, couldn't even move, and you said that that was September of last year, where it couldn't even it needed to be on tethers, and right. then exactly. in February of this year. Uh, so what, three five months later, they showed that you know a little bit more impressive where it can move the uh, hands and so forth. And now I do have a video of the actual presentation they did in February. And they are talking about it. Should we show that? And you want to pause in certain yeah, areas? Right. Or so, okay. Yeah. So so just to to summarize everything is is a little over a year ago they started building the first robot, which is Bubble C, and they got it up. And they could demonstrate that it's working. Meanwhile, they're working on the other prototype, but they haven't got it going. So for the AI Day Two presentation in September, they had what was kind of the first mock-up they did that could come out and actually walk around and prove that hey, we we know to walk, we can move it, we can do a bunch of other things and then show that actually could do more than walk, was able to pick up things. But the best they could do with the other one was, was pull it out and say, look, it's, it's still a prototype. This is pretty much fresh off the press. It's not doing anything yet. However, we've got all these simulations showing what it's going to look like because we're needing that to be able to train it and teach it. And then radio silence. <laughs> we didn't hear anything until February, and this is the investor day. And this is, this is very important. Remember, investor day is about Investor Day. It was, it was Master Plan 3. It was like the big vision of everything. And they were showing lots of little things of what Tesla was kind of doing, but it wasn't supposed to be about Optimus. And then suddenly, zip, zipped right in there is this one and a half minute video showing 
what Optimus is doing. And it's for the investors to say, see, we've actually got something. So that was a little bit of a surprise that we get to see a glimpse of Optimus already in February and see what it was doing. And of course, I get very excited about it. James Dama got very excited about it. John Gibbs got very excited. Of course, Randy Kirk got even more excited. So when we all saw that, yes, it's not something that's just standing, that's a mannequin in a corner, which it looked like. It's like, it is actually moving. It's actually picking things up. It's actually picking up a tool. It's, you know, doing this. So we can take a look at that if, if you want, okay. and I'll, I'll talk yeah. over it again. Okay. So the clip that we've seen so far is in September and then February. And then just recently, yes. they had a shareholder day. And I'm going to show the clip that they shared then, which is just mind-blowing what now, in very short order, the bot can do. So let's take a look at that. More than one bot. Incredible torque control, which is uh, showing the level of dexterity and control they're going to have for the robot overall. Also safety. Ability to map its environment and understand it. Ways of training and teaching the bot. Basically through demonstration and it's able to do it. And this is important because they're now going away from heuristics and doing everything with uh, uh, neural nets. Pretty good dexterity there. And we see a fleet of bots there. <laughs> okay. Now, when was the shareholder meeting? Was, uh, was it in May, I think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just last month. Yeah, just so it was last month. And so we're going from basically, I think it was February, March, April, May. So within three months, they went from mm -hmm. the other video where they showed a few things to a little bit more with the, with the Optimus. And the comments that we heard in February is when they saw Optimus moving, is moving very slowly, and it seemed to be kind of squatting down a little bit and not being very sure about its steps. It looks way more confident now. So what we're seeing is uh, what we call the pelvic unlock, and it's also standing up a bit more erect. So that's already a better sign that the control that they have going on there for the walking is improving. It'll be faster. There's still a little bit more they can do with the feet and the toe off. And the speed is below a mile per hour at this point. And ideally you want to be up around two to two and a half miles per hour to really be useful in a factory, but they're getting there. So they, they have the capability from the simulations they've been able to demonstrate that they can do it. It's just starting to unlock it and getting more and more training data from the nets. And I'm sure they're moving along pretty quick now. So that was a month ago and they just showed the training, which is important because there's one way to teach a robot and that is you write code. You just sit there and write code and you teach it the locations you want it to go through and it just repeats exactly what you're doing. It's a script. So you're almost like a, like a screenplay writer that you say exactly what you want your actor to do and your actor just goes, goes ahead and does it. But in the real world, we want this thing to be able to ad lib depending on what it sees and just be able to give it a simple instruction of what it's supposed to do. Not tell it its lines, just say, yeah, go ahead and do this and then it will just kind of do that. And so that's the idea now is to come up with easier ways. But the first thing is it has to learn basic things, just like a baby has to sort of learn how to move its fingers at first and eventually how to grasp and then understands manipulation of other objects in the world and how they all tie together and then starts to become creative. They're in that early stages and we can either teach it with a lot of code or we can start actually going through there and demonstrating it. So that's what the idea of the human operator is going in and demonstrating these tasks then Optimus picking it up and then being able to play it back. Then you start labeling those tasks and just say, oh, okay, I want you to go grab the banana over there and bring it over here and maybe peel it and make me a banana split. So uh, it's going to be instructive like that. And so it's going to understand what it means to pick up a drill. Okay, now do a drilling operation. Um, go ahead and find a drill bit of a certain size. All those things are going to come along and get better and better over time. And eventually you'll just don't even have to go down to that level. You'll just say, yep, that thing needs three holes in it. Go put three holes in it. Right. So, okay. Doesn't have the ability to make jumps. It doesn't have the ability to twirl or balance per se. It's very still slow moving in terms of its locomotion, but at least it's moving bipedally. Yes. But mm -hmm. you said, number one, there's hands, there's fingers. And so it can yes. actually 
pour a you know watering can. It can actually uh, use a drill. It can pick things up and move it there. But more importantly, as you pointed out, it's actually using AI, real-world AI that comes from the robot robotaxi, the FSD, full self-driving that Tesla has, to navigate in its world. And then it has teleoperations where humans can show it first task and then it knowing what to do, but also it's neural net itself, it's learning itself, right? So tell me how that compares to what Atlas is able to do versus this Optimus. Okay, so at this point, it seems like uh, Tesla is way ahead from the learning standpoint because they have so much background and experience in AI. Uh, I'm not quite sure how Atlas is navigating the world. It, I think it is beginning, it's able to identify some objects, but still you're probably giving it some sort of path. I'm not sure that it's figuring it out. And there may be some telerobotic um, applications because I, but there's probably some stuff it's figuring out because I believe the, the backbone for the DARPA project was for a lot of these bots to figure out how to manipulate its way through a certain kind of course. Uh, as far as, you know, you're seeing the different levels that Atlas can do very athletic kind of things. And then I just have to ask you a question. You've, you've had a lot of jobs in your lifetime, right? Herbert, mm -hmm. when you know your, your oh, yeah. first jobs and everything, and when you applied for the jobs, you obviously looked at the job requirements, and then anywhere in the job requirements said that doing backflips was a requirement. <laughs> no, not for me. <laughs> no, it's just like you know, if if you want to be like a fireman or something like that, yeah, they right. expect you to be able to do obstacle courses and everything else, but in a factory environment, you're not trying to run obstacle uh, courses or or anything else. Majority of applications are like that. So that's kind of the one market that Tesla is clearly looking at. And, you know, we see Atlas is going to be looking for those that are going to be a bit tougher. Now, some construction applications, that's hard work, all right? And it might be that Atlas is more suited for that at first than the original versions of Optimus. You know, later on, Optimus might be able to do it, but it's, it's pretty tough getting up on a roof and carrying you know, sacks of whatever you're going to have to bring up there and bringing the shingles up there and, uh, wielding a hammer and doing that or, or bringing up the tools. So it's, it's a sense of backbreaking labor that who knows, maybe Atlas will be able to do, but remember it's usually an eight hour job. So there's going to be some issues of like how they get the battery packed. And of course, that's one of the, the things that Tesla has always been good at, at figuring out how to pack as much punch as they can into a small volume uh, as far as energy, and then also make sure they sip the electrons out of that thing to get the most out of it. So the efficiency, the motors and everything else. And that's why when you looked at all those bots last week, um, Tesla bot was the only one even close to eight hours. I mean, the, the only one that was five was like, it was on a, it was on a spec sheet, but we haven't even seen the robot yet. So the robots are actually moving around or only a couple of hours at most. Okay, great. So we've talked, we showed, and we talked about the difference in mm -hmm. movement, the difference in intelligence, Let's talk about the cost to build. And then after that, we're going to do the customer base. We're going to hear about the business model and uh, some other differences. But so, you know, they, the, the Boston Dynamics have built this incredibly beautiful bot that can do all these movements, but it looks heavy. It looks big. It looks like it has all these different parts to it. Uh, Tesla bot also looks pretty expensive, but they look a lot more, you know, slimmer. Um, tell me about the cost to build. Okay, so the, the first thing is Tesla bot is 5'8", and do you know how much it weighs? No. <laughs> okay, aspirational 125 pounds. It might be a little bit more than that, but somewhere around that. Um, we know Atlas is 4'11", mm -hmm. and is around 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that's rather interesting is the payload capability of Atlas is actually a little bit less than, than Optimus, which kind of surprised what? me. So they mm -hmm. were showing the payloads like, 25 pounds, which kind of surprised me. I thought it would be a little bit more, but yeah. maybe they're thinking of hands out stretch or something like that. And Tesla bots about 45. So mm -hmm. it's able to carry a little bit more, last a bit longer. And of course you see it's a little bit more lithe and just you know, meant for um, the, the factory kind of environment with the, the average height human. The, so the cost now, you got to remember Tesla's mentality is always designed for manufacture. Right. They, they're, they're, they're thinking when they're building a prototype, what is it going to be like to build this thing? Not the other way around. It's like, oh, let's just put together a prototype and then figure out, oh, now how do we make this thing? 
And this is something that Boston Dynamics is learning to do that right now. And, and Robert Plater has sort of talked about that because they've always been an, an R&D sort of corporation. And now they're trying to pivot into the manufacturing. So for them, scale is going to be about a thousand robots a year, which um, is a medium sized, medium to low kind of for like a lot of the robot manufacturers out there. For instance, the, the, um, I know KUKA, I think they're probably in excess of 20 or 25,000 robots a year. FANUC might even be higher than that. So a lot of the big robot manufacturers are, are putting out the tens of thousands a year. So a thousand is a pretty small number and there would be some very specialized cases and, and they have some niche markets that, th that they're going in. But we know Tesla bought, they're not looking to make a thousand. They're not looking to make 10,000. They're not looking to make a hundred thousand. They're looking to make millions. So that's, they, they've mentioned that many, many times. Now it's not just Elon saying that it's many of the different Tesla bot engineers. So it's been designed right from the beginning to make sure the price is going to be low. And, and if you want to get an idea of the cost now, it seems like it's, it's been very hard with the other companies to get an idea. I think you almost actually have to ask for the bot, you know, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things you have to ask, you can't afford. So you go to their website and it's like, Oh, if you want to know more, you know, just send contact information and we'll let you know. So, um, they don't say right in their webpage, but everyone estimates it's probably an order of a hundred thousand. I believe the spot robot, yep. which is the dog is about that. And it's probably about the same for Atlas, but they're trying to figure out how to get those costs down. And yeah, Robert, also make sure uh, they can produce them at a high rate. The Rob, Robert, the CEO of Boston Dynamics, said that it costs a hundred thousand yes. dollars or more. That's why they're going to yes. charge for that. Yeah. But uh, quick, quick question, because the thing I keep hearing from everybody is that Boston Dynamics is owned by Hyundai, correct? And Hyundai mm -hmm. is a manufacturer. So, if any of the yes. other robot companies, they have the potential to build, to know how to build things and to build things at scale. And yes. they have the money yes. to do this. So do you think that there's some truth in that statement, which is, you know, yes, Tesla is owned by a car manufacturer, but so is Boston Dynamics. Right. But um, Boston Dynamics was separate from Hyundai for a long, 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 long time. So they have a certain culture in how they, they, they build things. They've, they've always been research oriented. So most of that is stuff they're learning internally. And of course, I'm sure they're getting some from help from Hyundai on, on how to do it. But he's... Robert Plater has been very open about that. They are learning, they're finding out that they get ready to, to, to set up the manufacturer for something and they change the part. And the reason they change it is they're actually trying to make it more manufacturable, make it a little bit easier, or there's some elements that they have to do to try to improve it. So they're realizing that you, you've got to make sure that if you make a change in a part, that you're not going to affect the manufacturing process too much. That's the whole idea of design for manufacture. Mm -hmm. It used to be, it was like design for manufacturability that you just made sure, yeah, we can theory build this thing. We're not asking you to, we're not saying this is something that's impossible. And then there's the other of making it act, make sure it's easy to manufacture and then you can manufacture at scale. And when we try to figure out what the cost is for the Tesla bot, and we can do that. And I have a spreadsheet for that, <laughs> that we try to get the idea by first doing something I call bracketing. So the first is like, how much does it actually weigh? So, We've been told it's 125 pounds. And so I went through with some of the, the data that we got from AI day one and counted up all the servos that they have out there because on their slides, it tells us how much each servo weighs. So mm -hmm. I put that up there along line three, you can see the yellow servo, which shows up in some of the images there uh, on the bot. They will show some motors that are yellow and some that are green that we can get an idea of what those masses are. So we see that those are, those masses are there. And then when we see over there in the bot where they are, we can count them up. So I get an idea of how much just the motors alone weigh. And that's going into part of the total. Some guesses on how much maybe the cameras weigh and the head's going to weigh and the, and the structure and everything else. And so just looking at that, we get kind of an idea of like how much, you know, the torso is probably somewhere around seven kilos. Uh, each arm is around five kilograms. We've got 10 for the legs, the, the hands, probably about one and a half based on the servos, the head, I'm guessing about one, the batteries, we know pretty well, cause we know what kind of batteries in there and how many they are. So we know that's also gonna be around 10, kilo, 10 kilograms. So you add it up, you get very close to their aspiration and maybe they're off by 10% or something like that. So maybe it's 135 pounds. Or something. It's definitely under 150. Um, so we're, we're pretty sure about that now. The, the other way to look at it is, 
you know, Elon believes that the cost of a product should be very close to the cost of the materials themselves. And that there's a certain factor that you have to, to rearrange those atoms into what you want. And if that becomes very big, then uh, I think they call it like some idiot index or something like that. <laughs> that if you, if you, if it, if you have, you know, a dollar's worth of material and it costs you a thousand dollars to make something out of it, there's something wrong. You, you've got to figure out how to rearrange those things a little bit better. And so we can bracket how much the Tesla bot is going to cost to build by two ways. One, we look at how much material it's built up. So I've got here along line 39, the cost of different materials, aluminum, copper, iron, and everything else. And if you sort of guess, you know, if it's 100% aluminum, and based on the mass of the bot, we're talking about about $130 of material cost there. So we know that's the low end. And then the high end is like, it can't be more expensive than a Model 3. You know, the reality <laughs> is, come on, it can't be. So we'd say that's like, how much does it cost Tesla to build a Model 3? Maybe 25,000. Know, they're selling it for a bit more, but it's probably about 25. So we know the number is somewhere in between there. High end 30, the low end is $130. We know we're not going to get down there. However, you can see the effect that if you go to where the, the W column is, where you know F is column F, but W, that actually stands for tungsten. If you change the percent on F39 to like 100% there, and then you get an idea of how much it's going to cost. Oh, oh my goodness, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, or actually, did I have that percent right? Is that 100% or maybe you put one in there or something like that? Um, there, that's better. <laughs> okay. So, so, that's, so that means it's gonna be about $8,000 worth mm -hmm. of tungsten if you built the whole thing out of tungsten. Mm -hmm. And we know it's not built out of tungsten. The reason why you don't know it's built out of tungsten is in my spreadsheet, I've got a quote in there from Malcolm at like 3230 in the, the AI Day 2 video where he says that, and actually you might want to go over to that slide. So if you slide over there and uh, you see where the one in the lower corner, okay, and then scroll up a little bit there. You see where it says structure for mass production. So the whole point of that part of his presentation was we want to make this thing for mass production. And he says, we don't have the luxury of using exotic materials like tungsten and carbon fiber. So the whole idea is keep everything simple. And the structure be made out of plastic or aluminum or anything else. So it means it's not going to be rigid, and, but we have to make sure it falls down and doesn't break and everything else. So they're designing it to make sure it's cheap to produce. And he mentions, you know, we want to make these, you know, the thousands, tens of thousands, millions. So we are designing right from the beginning, how do you come up with a bot to do that? So we know no exotic materials, pretty sure that's gonna be the low end. So we come back mm -hmm. on over on the sheet and we can begin to see uh, what the costs are gonna be. And so we can start to guess. So there's a little bit of a bill of materials there. So starting on line 43, I have the, um, that's basically the FSD chip. So that's the, um, the, the sock, you know, one, one of those uh, chips I think it's 500, if anyone's wanted to correct me on that, because I think I've been told the actual FSD board that they put in every um, every Tesla is around $1,000. But it has two socks in it, and you really only need one for the Tesla bot. So that's going to be about 500. The cameras, we know there's six cameras. And the cameras are probably not more than $100 a piece. I mean, that's the price I could get on Amazon for those things. They're going to be a lot less. So again, I am like, highballing some of these things. The 2170s, we know there's 140 of them in there. So the batteries, um, they're $6.15. That's what it would cost me to go out and buy them in bulk. So we know they can do better than that. The motors were kind of guessing in here, but it seems like looking at the types of motors, either, they could probably manufacture them for around $100 each. Once, once they scale it up. Again, this is scaling up right now. It's costing them a lot more to build them. But you'll see that a lot of the cost is probably right there in the motors. Then you start down, you know, you guess, well, okay, there's going to be some control system stuff in there, some inverters, some hardware, just meaning like, you know, the nuts and the bolts and the eye bolts and everything else that they're going to need that is probably a lot less than, than $400. The, the plastic covers are going to put in there, any harnessing they're going to need, other housings they're going to put together, the castings for the, the arms. So, you know, guessing what they are. And I'm, I'm assuming there's about 30 castings and I'm really being high on how much the castings are going to cost a piece. In other words, if, if you want to do 
the lower arm or the upper arm, they might say, oh, it's going to cost you $10, whatever your supplier is or internally. And the number I've got over on the side there is pretty much a confirmation that there's some rule of thumb that if you take the weight of the material and multiply by some number out, you would kind of get an idea of how much it should cost. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the cost of the material plus times a factor gets you that. So in other words, I was like, ah, ballpark about right. So if I look at actually the amount of aluminum that we're going to be using in there, it should be about $300, something like that to cast them. So all that stuff makes sense. So you, you take those numbers, you put them together. And I think when I add it all up, it's like around $7,000. And that's pretty close to some of what were our gut feelings when discuss it with other people as well and what they really think the low end should be. They all had kind of that feeling. But the problem is the number was coming out of your gut. It's like, all mm-hmm. right, let's start going and start calculating these things. And I'm kind of highballing a lot of this stuff. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's going to cost them this, they can produce them for that much this year. But it means aspirationally, they should be able to get under $10,000 for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they probably will be able to go below the number I have there, especially when you start making a million a year. Yeah, that's a Tesla bot, but uh, we know that right. um, the Boston Dynamics, let's play that clip because we, we can hear him, the, the CEO, directly explaining their philosophy, why they did what they did, why they really are at the R&D stage, why they optimize for features the ability to do movement versus it being something that they want to sell directly to consumers let's uh let's hear him say his uh clip here when uh was spot born around 2012 or so so again almost 10 years into sort of a run with darpa where we built a bunch of different quadrupeds we had a sort of a different thread where we started building humanoids um we 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 saw that probably an end was coming where the government was going to kind of back off from a lot of robotics investment and uh in order to maintain progress we just deduced that well we probably need to sell ourselves to somebody who wants to continue to invest in this this area and that was google and so um uh, at google we would meet regularly with larry page and Larry just started asking us, you know, well, what's your product going to be? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the logical thing, the thing that we had the most history with mm-hmm. that we wanted to continue developing was a quadruped. But we knew it needed to be smaller. We knew it couldn't have a gas engine. We, we thought it probably couldn't be hydraulically actuated. So that began the process of exploring if we could migrate to a smaller electrically actuated um, robot and that was really the genesis of spot so not a gas engine and the actuators are electric yes so can you maybe comment on what it's like um at google with working with larry page having those meetings and thinking of what will a robot look like that could be built at scale what like starting to think about a product larry always liked the the toothbrush test he wanted products that you used every day um what they really wanted was you know a consumer level product something that would work in your house we didn't think that was the right next thing to do mm-hmm. because to be a consumer level product cost is going to be very important probably need to cost a few thousand dollars and we were we were building these machines that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars maybe a million dollars to build of course we were only building a two but but we didn't see how to get all the way to this consumer level product in a short amount of time. in a short amount of time and he suggested that we we make the robots really inexpensive and part of our philosophy has always been build the best hardware you can make make the machine operate well so that you're trying to solve you know discover the the hard problem that you don't know about don't don't make it harder by by building a crappy machine basically mm-hmm. build the best machine you can there's plenty of hard problems to solve that are going to have to do with you know underactuated systems and balance and so we wanted to build these high quality machines still and we thought that was important for us to continue learning about really what was the important 
parts of that, that make robots work. Um, and so there was a little bit of a f philosophical difference there. That we and and so ultimately that's why we're building robots for the industrial sector now because the industry can afford a more expensive machine because you know their productivity depends on keeping their factory going. And so if spot costs, you know, um, $100,000 or more, that's not such a big expense to them. Whereas at the consumer level, no one's going to buy a robot like that. And I think we might eventually get to a consumer level product that will be that cheap. But I think the path to getting there needs to go through these really nice machines so that we can then learn how to simplify. Okay. Three things he said there. Okay. So this is the misunderstanding that many have about Boston Dynamics. <clears throat> One is they are focusing on the spot and we're going to show a video clip of this mm -hmm. four-legged dog. That's the one that they're going to sell to industrial companies at a hundred thousand and more. He talked about how they've always, th their philosophy was to build something that, you know, work first on showing that it can do things. And that's why it's very, very expensive to build the humanoid Atlas, but they never intended and they can't find a way to bring it the price down to be consumer level. Um, and so they're not going after consumer and they're going after industrial and they're really focusing more on the bot than they are uh, on the dog than they are on the humanoid, even though that's the one that's uh, impressing everybody. And their company was never really structured. So, you know what I mean? Like I, it's hard to, for me to see that uh, the Boston Dynamics, while impressive, is actually, a, you know, they're competing head to head. What, what did you gather out of all that? Yeah, a, a lot of it is sort of like um, a solution looking for a problem, not to um, diminish what they've been doing, because that's the whole idea of being in these research areas is to try to solve challenging problems that may eventually have application. That's why we went to the moon and everything else to try to solve these problems. So for them, it was always about some sort of walking mechanism or robot, be it quadruped or, or biped. And... They, they could have gone the route and said, well, why don't we just start making mobile robots like everyone else? I mean, there's lots of companies making mobile robots out there. That means you're putting them on wheels or something like that. And they're like, no, 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 it's going to be legged. We, we've got to make it legged. The, the problem is they, they didn't really go out and do the market research to say, like, who needs these kinds of robots? And so they didn't really know. It's like, well, it's kind of one of those things, you know, if we build it, they will come. And they slowly started to find these applications that there were people interested in in the industrial setting. And that makes sense when you're at the high end. You know, back in the 80s, you had graphics cards that and they didn't exist. I mean, computers could barely do graphics. And you had these high end silicon graphics workstations and everything would be hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to do what you want. Now you have more power already in your cell phone. So at that time, only the GMs and the NASA's and, and the Boeing's of the world could afford that kind of stuff. So that's where you got to start when you're talking about real, not just cutting edge, bleeding edge kind of technology that they're doing here. And so they started to get the spot out there. And later on, you know, he kind of mentions a little bit that they realize that these industrial applications are inspection. Because you you have some of these bots that could just go around the floor that can be, be carts or be on wheels and maybe go around and check a few things. And you've even probably seen these security bots that are in parking mm -hmm. lots that basically, you know, go mm -hmm. around and, and they look for intruders and they have cameras on them and they're on wheels. They're not doing anything really fancy and they might patrol the factory a little bit. That's not much. But they're talking about settings where you can't do it that way. You've got to go upstairs. You've got to go on catwalks. You can do everything else. And that's when you need to have a legged vehicle. And that's where Spot comes in. And then it's doing these inspections because you've got to test gauges. You've got to check for sound, all these other things. And they started to learn along the way. It's like, what is it that our customer actually needs? And it was more like, oh, we got this mobile platform. Oh, you want us to put something on a camera on it to take a picture of this? Great. Oh, you need a thermal scanner. We'll do that. And then they started adding all these things, but they were not integrated together. And they've recently come out, and you talked about that in Lex's interview, that like they're putting it all together because they've now learned from their customer what their customer needs. Now they can start to produce a product for the customer. And we're going to find out they also have done it with a couple of other bots they've come up with that yeah. they kind of got into other the kinds space of bots. and they learned about it. Yeah. Yes. Let's show Spot because, I mean, we've mentioned it several times. Yes. We haven't yet shown it. So let's go ahead and show that first yes. and then maybe show the other kinds of bots I've created called Stretch, I think you called it. So let's take a look at the Spot. Yeah, stretch and Handle. Yep. Not easy to get into with a wheeled vehicle. 
So some of the inspection might be camera, might be infrared, might also be uh, sonic or acoustic where you're, you're listening. For... Thanks for tuning in to today's spot product announcement. The past few years have been transformative for so many technologies. We're seeing rapid advancements in AI, automation, data management, and a growing need for better data collection to power those tools. And these shifts are driving a huge need for leaders to prepare their businesses for the next generation of technology that helps solve industry challenges in new and exciting ways. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna. Many I'm of the world's leading companies are looking to robots to augment their workforce. And Spot is the world leader in the emerging mobile robotics market. With more than a thousand robots in over 35 countries, no other robot has been deployed more often to tackle some of the industry's toughest most dangerous tasks. Spot handles tasks that are difficult or dangerous for people. Spot spends hours and hours each week walking factory floors, checking gauges and machinery, exposes itself to high radiation in nuclear facilities, goes offshore and much more so people like you don't have to. Every single day our robot is being deployed at job sites all over the world and it's making a big difference in industries like manufacturing, construction, power and utilities, mining, oil and gas, and even in the classroom, where hopefully we're helping inspire the next generation of young roboticists. I'm going to pause it there. It's a very long video, but it uh, sounds like they're selling it. It looks like it's their entire business model right now. It looks very impressive, but I saw that somebody was controlling it. Is that what's still happening? Um, well, it's, it's kind of giving you the task. So my understanding is it's a little bit semi-autonomous. So you give the task of where you want it to go and then you're, you're monitoring it because you, you want to see what it's inspecting and what it's been able to do. So they've added a certain amount of autonomy, like to be able to auto figure out where a door handle is and open it up and mm -hmm. go in there and, and run these things. But um, it's not just about having it running around doing whatever it wants. You do want to make sure there's a human in the loop to see what's going on so they understand the results. And there's a lot more inspection that needs to be done out there. I mean, most of us in our daily lives, we don't appreciate what goes on behind the scenes with everything that we use in, in our lives and all the, all the factories that are there, the industry that's behind it. They will easily be able to sell a thousand of these a year. No, no yeah, doubt about it, sure. especially when they, people begin to realize what it can do. And it might be a much bigger market than they expect at first. They might think, oh, mm -hmm. you know, we'll just thousand for a couple of years. Like, nope, I bet it ramps up. Yeah. Wonderful. Let's go see the other bot that they've credited called Stretch, right? Let's take a look at that one. Chip Fabs, you know, we're working with Global Foundries. Uh, it takes place in electric uh, utilities and nuclear power plants. And so the same robot can be applied in all of these industries. And, and uh, as I said, we have about, uh, actually, it's 1,100 spots out now. To really get the, you know, profitability, we need to be at a thousand a year, maybe maybe fifteen hundred a year, you know, for that sort of part of the business. So it still needs to grow, um, but but we're on a good path. So I think that's totally achievable. So the application should require crossing that thousand robot barrier. It really should. Yeah, I want to mention you know our second robot, mm -hmm. uh, Stretch. Yeah, tell me, tell me about Stretch. What's Stretch? Who's Stretch? Stretch started differently than Spot. You know, Spot we built because we had decades of experience building quadrupeds. We just, we had it in our blood. We had to build a quadruped product, but we had to go figure out what the application was. And we actually discovered this, this factory patrol application, mm -hmm. uh, basically preventative maintenance, by seeing what our customers did with it. Stretch is very different. We started knowing that there was warehouses all over the world. There's shipping containers moving all around the world full of boxes that are mostly being moved by hand. By some estimates, we think there's a trillion boxes, <laughs> cardboard boxes shipped around the world each year. And a lot of it's done manually. It became clear early on that there was an opportunity for a mobile robot in here to move boxes around. And the commercial experience has been very different between Stretch and with Spot. As soon as we started talking to people, uh, potential customers about what stretch was going to be used for, they immediately started saying, Oh, I'll buy, I'll buy that robot. You know, in fact, I'm going to put in an order for, for 20 right now. We just started shipping the robot in January uh, after, you know, several years of development of this year, this year. 
So our first deliveries of stretch to customers were DHL and Maersk in January. We're, at, we're delivering a gap right now. And we have about seven or eight other customers, all who've already agreed in advance to buy between 10 and 20 robots. And so we've already got commitments for you know a couple hundred of these robots. This one's going to go, right? It's so obvious that there's a need. All right. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Stretch is an industrial go. robot. It's a great thing. They will sell it, but there's already thousands of other industrial robots. That is your job. You own two robotics companies that were doing these massive industrial robots. Now, so that's so the, it looks like that they're really trying to make money from Stretch and then the four-legged spot. Yes. Yes. Doesn't sound like the while fancy. Everybody keeps thinking, oh my gosh, Boston Dynamics so far ahead in terms of the bipedal humanoid form, but doesn't sound like they're even focusing on that at all. And it doesn't sound like they can right. turn that into a right. sales thing. Right. At, at, at first they can't. So if you look at it, it looks to be a little bit more like your standard industrial robot, but the application is a little bit unique because the application today is still being done manually. So in theory, it's one of those that maybe a humanoid robot could go in there and do, but they solved that problem with a specialty robot to do it that is mobile. So the idea of that is it's, it's very deployable. It's able to kind of go in there and lock itself down in place if it needs to, but it can also adjust its position very easily because as you start taking the boxes out, you have to keep on going in further and further. And so it's a very clever application. Um, so maybe now they're really trying to get in, into their stride of finding how they can start building robots that are going to be useful and unique in niche applications. And there are a lot of places to be able to do that. And in some cases, maybe it'll be faster than a humanoid, you know, probably faster than a human. And the question is, will it be faster than a humanoid robot? And that's the idea of these specialty bots. Um, the other thing is they also learned a hard lesson. They came up with another design before that, that mm -hmm. I don't know if we've got a little clip showing it where it was called um, Handle. It's the one that kind of, went around a little bit funny. People said it looked, remind them a little bit of a dinosaur or an ostrich because it had this big tail, but it had these big wheels and it was moving around trying to balance on that. And they learned the hard way that that was not quite the right design. So the second iteration, which is very different, they nailed it. And so I, I like looking at the progress of the company. It's difficult to go to be pure R&D to actually come up with a company that's able to do things for profit. and they're going to be scaling, but it's, again, it's very different. We're talking about maybe thousands, not even tens of thousands of bots per year that will keep them afloat, allow them to go, maybe to continue, keep on doing the development in Atlas until eventually they're able to get Atlas down to a scale. But now they're learning how do we produce these things? How do we get it in the customer's hands? They're yeah. looking at B2B and they're not looking at something that's going to be in the home. This is shocking to me, Scott. Shocking. I always thought, just like everybody else, Boston Dynamics is a direct competitor to Tesla. They're not. So let's uh, switch back and talk about Tesla Bot. I think you've got another spreadsheet here, right? Do you want to tell me what that is? Uh, let me see which spreadsheet that was probably. Okay, what's it worth? So these are some numbers I'm trying to put together to get an idea of how much could a humanoid robot save? by first looking mm -hmm. at the, the hourly wage structure. Now you might be saying, when you look at the upper corner of the hourly wage, that if you were paying someone $25 an hour and they're working uh, 40 hours a week, over 52 weeks, that's going to cost you around $70,000 because you have FICA tax, you've got a little bit of overhead on top of it. And you might say, oh, $25, that's way above minimum wage. If you want, you can put $15 in there or whatever the minimum wage is, but that's, I believe, the minimum wage in most factories, certainly within the Tesla factories. So that means one worker for one shift per week is around $70,000. So if you are running three shifts, so you go ahead and put in like three in column G for the shifts, then suddenly you find, you know, that in order to perform a particular task that requires a worker to be there 24 seven, mm -hmm. and you have to pay them 24, $25 an hour, that means that operation is costing you over $200,000. And that's like a low skill. As you start getting things of higher skill, you begin to see a holy cow, <laughs> you know, it's like mm -hmm. over $400,000. That's a lot of money 
to be paying for that one operation. And then you have hundreds of those operations throughout the factory. And you begin to see that that starts adding up. So I was trying to get an idea of based on how many bots you might need per human. So if you remember that, that famous scene in, uh, in Shanghai of the operator who's loading the two different stations. So that's an operator doing two tasks. Let's say the bot is really slow and it can only do one of those. So you need two bots to do what that one human is. That's why I say like for one human doing two bots at a low skill uh, operation, what would that be? But if you change that, that you know one bot per one human, then the savings goes up quite a bit. Now, the thing to remember, even on the shop floor, you have managers. So Optimus is going to have managers and those will probably be humans. And the question is how many bots is a human able to be, to manage mm -hmm. at a time? So if, if it's one bot per human, you're not going to save any money <laughs> because that manager is being paid probably $50,000 or $50 right. an hour to do that. So the idea is that you're going to be changing that. So if you change sort of like, you know, how many groups a human can do, how many bots might be in the, in there, you begin to see what the overall savings is and how much that particular manual labor may cost you over the course of one year. So you're seeing with very, you know, sort of generous kind of numbers in, in there as, as far as, you know, the number of bots you would need, you might need more bots than humans, et cetera. You still are talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of savings that you'd be able to get potentially within just one factory. And then as the bots get more and more skilled, you're going to see that number go up and up and up as far as the number of savings. So you can get close to, you know, your OPEX within a factory might be a billion dollars or more savings easily. So I wanted to get a handle on that of, of what is the actual value of the Tesla bot. So we can say, it looks like we eventually would be able to manufacture it for $10,000. But remember, the, the value of something is very different than the cost to produce it. That's what the market, you know, supply and demand sort of determines. And so you know, the big question is if you had the opportunity to buy a Tesla bot yourself, how much would you be willing to pay for it? Mm -hmm. And it well, depends upon how you come from it, right? I think we've already talked about this in the past that uh, yes. Tesla does not need to sell this bot to consumers. They Correct. can sell it to themselves. And they themselves, I think uh, Tom Ju, who's the chief uh, officer that's responsible for operations of all the gigafactories that Tesla has, has said that the next gigafactory they're building in Giga Nueva Leon in Mexico, it's going to have 5,000 bots. And so even if they don't sell it to anybody, they just use it themselves, they're going to save $200,000, $300,000, like you've said, per bot. And then, um, and then the difference between, as we compare Boston Dynamics and Tesla, the difference is Tesla is building their bots inside this massive company that already has engineers, has supercomputers for the intelligence. It has the ability to manufacture products for cars, but now can manufacture uh, the parts for the bot. Boston Dynamics is its own separate corporation, even though it's owned by Hyundai, and they're going to throw money at it to build out all of these different divisions. They need to hire if it needs to have intelligence. They need to buy a supercomputer. <laughs> Tesla already has the fifth largest supercomputer in the world. They need to hire all the machine learning engineers expert. Hyundai doesn't have it. And so, you know what I mean? Like the, the cost for them to support this business unit, it has to sell right away versus Tesla doesn't cost them anything because it's incremental. And then when they use the bot, they can have immediate impact for their own business and then take it from there, sell it to other companies. That's a huge difference as well, right? Yes, uh, I've always said a penny saved is a penny earned. So that's all Tesla has to do. If they're able to save some money, so if they put a billion dollars in the R&D for Tesla bot and it turns around and it saves them a billion dollars in the factory, they haven't lost they any money. Yeah. And then if they start saving, you know, that billion dollars every year after that in the factory, well, they're making money yeah. without even selling. So every time they sell a Tesla, that's where they're making the money right there because the yeah, margins and everything nice. else. They don't need yeah. an external customer. And when they do get an external customer, that's when things get insane. And then the question is how much they sell it for, if they sell it, lease it, what would they lease it for? And I'm not the one to be able to say how, how much Tesla bot is worth to Tesla and to Tesla shareholders. I know there are a lot of people that are going out there and doing these calculations of how many dollars per share it's worth and, and what is 
what the TAM is going to be five or 10 years from now. That's for people with more sophisticated analysts to be able to do it. But what I want to do is make sure that anyone that's trying to work out that they get a basic idea of like, okay, what do we think it's going to cost? And, you know, we've already got the bracket. We know it's not going to be cheaper than $150. Someday, maybe, who knows when all sorts of things get kind of crazy. Um, and it's not going to be more than $30,000. So, you know, you, you have that kind of range. And we're pretty confident it's probably going to be 10000 or less. And then the question is, what's it actually worth to an individual? And as you know, I did a poll a couple of weeks ago, for everyone to, to you know, sort of ask them if you were able to buy a Tesla bot. And if it was $100,000, how many would you buy? And it was a rather interesting response to that. Now, it's not a scientific poll or anything like that. And unfortunately, on Twitter, you only have like four opportunities in a poll, right? And so I couldn't put like none or, or anything else or see the results. So I, I said, okay, would you buy one, 10, 100, or 1,000? And there were some people who said, oh, wouldn't buy any, it's too much, too rich for my blood. But there were a lot of people that said they would buy one. So that would be around 70%. But I was also surprising there was about 10% that said they would go for 1,000. And so there was like one, 10, 100, and 1,000. And of those, which one do you think had the lowest number of what people would want to buy? What do you mean? Most people will not just buy just one. <laughs> yeah. I'll so what it was is like they were either going to buy one or they were going to buy a okay. thousand. Okay. When it was around a hundred thousand dollars, it was rather interesting. When the price came down, then some of yeah. those that were thinking of buying one decided, well, maybe I'll go for the 10. No one yeah. was in for a hundred. I mean, it was really interesting. It's like, Ah, you know, either you were like pushing all your chips into the middle or you're saying, well, I'll just have a couple. So there was uh, there were still a significant number of respondees and either they were just doing it because they wanted to see the poll results um, or they were really serious. And there were a lot who were who were serious about it that I'll ask you, Herbert, if you had the chance, (laughs) this is the golden ticket, right? You're at AI day three. And now I have to ask you, you remember the Cybertruck reveal? Did oh, you yeah. watch yeah, the Cybertruck reveal? What yes, did you did. do Everybody after did. the Cybertruck reveal? <laughs> Order. Everybody well, ordered. That's why they have 1.5. Well, I didn't. Think okay. I, I learned my lesson okay. the hard way because there were a lot of people that were actually there and, and they, they ordered yeah. right away. It was like a year later before I did it. Boy, did I pay for mm-hmm. that. I mean, I'm like a million sure. something. So I'm, I'm way down. So I'm like, yeah. I'm not going to make that mistake. If I am invited and if they just say only the people in the room after you've seen it and you're convinced yeah. this thing is working, I'm actually seeing it. It's not yeah. a video. I've interacted with it. That thing is working. And they yeah. pull a, a number out and say, okay, you get to make the first order and you can order between one and 10,000. Oh, yeah. How many would you order? <laughs> and remembering that, I mean, that's a thousand dollars per order yeah. down payment. Yeah. There's no, there's no doubt 000. at this point. Yeah, there's no debate yeah. here. I think that if it works, even yeah. it doesn't have to work and be able to do everything. It just needs to even do just right. one specific thing. It's going to be a huge nude. So what we did today was we compared Boston Dynamics Atlas against mm-hmm. Tesla Bots Optimus. Boston Dynamics, there is no competition because they're not even competing, which is a big shocker to me. So let's go through the list here. Boston Dynamics right. Atlas, they've been working on it for many years, 30 years they've been doing this, but they're a research and development organization. They created the bipedal atlas, but in fact, their business today is Spot, which is the four-legged dog, and this uh, Stretch, which is in the factory. They they don't have hands. They don't have the ability to manipulate the hands. They don't have the uh, AI and the brains to be able to make anything. They've said they're not selling to consumers. Um, They're going to try to sell to the 100,000 and plus um, to do that. The cost to build of Atlas is crazy. I mean, he, I think he said a hundred thousand dollars, uh, even higher and they, and then they, um, yeah. So those are, those are the big ones. I mean, right. I mean, it's like, it's like they're not even competing with each other. So it's interesting. And then the business model, as we talked about that, uh, uh, you know, even though they're owned by Hyundai, they're not necessarily being manufactured by Hyundai. They're not being in t- inside their business model. They have to be a standalone separate, investment and need to make money selling it themselves versus Tesla. They're creating millions of these. That's their plan. They've shown the progress. I think that's the big difference in the speed of progress. Tesla just announced they're going to get Tesla bot 
two years ago. You kept telling me, right? It's not quite even two years ago. September. Right. In three months, that's what they'll be two years from now. And in fact, they've already caught up in many ways. People are going, well, look how slow they still are. They can't do jumps. Yeah, but this is two years. But they can do a lot of other things that the Boston Dynamics can't with the dexterity, the fingers, right. and the brains right. and learning. So very different. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and we talked about last week that triangle, which was really showing that you need to have the brains, the hands, and the walking. And I think we can say that Boston Dynamics has definitely solved the walking problem. But you know they haven't really done the brains, and, and they don't really have anything with the dexterity of the hands or, or, or the sensory input. So they're very different. That's why they're operating in different spaces. The other thing that a lot of people thought of is that when you look at, at Asimo and you look at Boston, it took them a long time to come up with a, a bipedal robot. And so mm -hmm. the feeling was like, well, Tesla's going to do it. It's also going to take them 30 years. You're not realizing that, well, there's a lot of research that's been done out there, a lot of technologies that are converging together that makes that possible. So it's not like it's going to be a 30-year project. But at the same time, I'm also kind of amazed that when something is cracked, you assume everyone else is going to be able to, to follow suit really quickly. So when SpaceX started landing rockets, it's like, oh, in, in a year right. or two, everyone's going to be doing it. And it's like, it's been almost 10, let's see, it was like 2015 was the first time they, they, they've landed 200 now. It's 200 to zero. I'm still waiting right. for the competition no one else to come. Able to do it. So yeah. you're beginning to wonder. It's like, it's just Elon has this Midas touch. And he's probably going to, they're going to go in there and they're going to get the Tesla bot working. And we're going to assume there's going to be a flood of other ones coming right behind it. And it may not be, it may still be quite a while before they're able to kind of fill that gap and figure it out. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, we just said it today, which is, else solved, it doesn't mean they all have in order to do this, you need to have a company that has a supercomputer has to have neural networks. You have to yes. have hundreds and hundreds of machine learning engineers, the best in the world. You need to have manufacturing factories and this and the uh, the DNA and the skill to create materials, castings, and then you need to have a business model where I, we can go on and yes. on. And if you don't have that, you can only do pieces of it. So thank you, Scott, for doing this with me, folks. We've done several videos, so check out the list of all the uh, Dr. Scott Walter videos. They're all been incredible. We've done ones where we do deep dives into Tesla Bot. Tesla bots uh, jobs that they could do in the factory. Why Scott believes that there's going to be at least 500 Tesla bots by the end of this year. And that the fact that the bots are already working now. And then the latest video we did, we actually looked at 10 different bots out there of which Boston Dynamics was one. And so today we wanted to do a head to head comparison. I think it's one of the few videos that's ever been done where we looked at all the components, not just showing the two bots, you know, and we really did a deep dive. Thank you for that, Scott. Um, always a pleasure and just pleasure. so brilliant, uh, your analysis. Thank you.